Australia Explained, keeping you on top of all things down under. In this episode of Australia Explained, we break down the hunter-gatherer myth surrounding First Nations communities, what their lives were like before colonisation, and how they practice farming and land management. Hello everyone, my name is Tanya Ragusa. And I'm Vanessa Gigrazia. And welcome back to yet another episode of Australia Explained. I'd like to start off by acknowledging that I'm recording this podcast on the lands of the Yorubara people and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. And in the same length, I'm recording this podcast on the lands of the Wandri people and pay that same respect to elders, past, present and emerging. Our episode today actually ties in quite nicely with the idea of acknowledging country and having a connection to land because we're discussing some of the ways in which First Nations communities lived pre-colonisation, so before British invasion. Yeah, and I was remembering to when we first started this podcast and this was actually the first episode we were going to do. I don't know yes. if you remember that. Yeah. Yes, because if you want a bit of a, a something on the DL – when we first started this podcast, we wanted to do it chronologically. So we wanted to start from like pre-colonisation and work our way throughout Australian history. But I'm glad we scrapped that idea. Yeah, we realised that was so impossible. <laughs> yeah, it would not have worked. Um, but it's always something we've wanted to revisit, so I'm glad we have. So there's a big assumption that First Nations people were hunter-gatherers and that they simply search for food like nomads. I know this is definitely what I learned in school and what a lot of other people learned in school. Um, yeah, this idea that they were just wandering around trying to survive. Yeah, but there is a lot of emerging evidence that suggests that First Nations peoples actually lived in quite sophisticated agricultural communities and they developed systems of farming and trade that sort of resemble a fraction of our modern-day practices today and, and it seems like they um, evolved from what First Nations communities once practised. For sure. We're going to break down why this hunter-gatherer myth even matters, why it's harmful, and how it perpetuates certain ideas about the First Nations communities of our country and why this myth was even created or became came to be in the first place. Yeah, and... We've used this disclaimer in a previous episode about the Tasmanian genocide and we actually have quite a bit of a, a really great discussion in that episode about the ethics of discussing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories. So if you'd like to listen to that in length, please go back to that Tasmanian genocide episode and do so. Um, but we want to just quickly restate that as non-Indigenous white women, it is important to approach this topic with respect and make sure that we don't abuse our privilege. So of course, all our information today comes from Black Voices, First Nations sources and scholars. And we also remain critical of how some historical sources have been affected by colonisation. So, for example, um, there has been the long-standing erasure of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices from historical documents and also paying attention to the fact that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities have a strong oral tradition of passing down stories. So that might mean some sources only contain coloniser perspectives and we have to be weary about that. So critical analysis, my friends, it is a blessing but also a bit of a curse because we constantly have to think about these things. <laughs> yes, and we're being very teachery right now, but this is just the nature of history or any of these kinds of studies is that 
evidence and sources are not always 100%. And that's why we have to look at a wide range of evidence and come to conclusions through that. So that's what we've tried to do today. And that's what our episode will become a part of. All right, so let's start with what we have been generally taught about pre-colonial Indigenous life. Yes, so we asked on our Instagram poll if our listeners had thought that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander were hunter-gatherers, and I did construct this poll pretty carefully um, in order to show, like, I didn't want to push people towards one answer, so I included a bunch of different answers. Um, And Around a quarter of respondents said that they did believe that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were hunter-gatherers. And this is absolutely not an indication of people being stupid or ignorant on an individual level because the individuals are so not to blame here. Mm. People can only understand what they're taught, and this is exactly what was taught in schools. It still is taught in a lot of schools. Um, But the truth is that hunter-gatherer societies – By definition, they forage and hunt for food. So they don't build permanent dwellings. They don't undertake agriculture, farming. And this simply doesn't apply to the reality of Australia before colonisation. Yeah, so most of us have been educated in Australia um, and we've been exposed to these racist stereotypes without really knowing it. Um, Doesn't mean that we're inherently racist as an individual, but we've just had these stereotypes I guess, forced upon us without actually realising where they stem from. They've been ingrained in our society that Indigenous communities were so ancient and so native that they lived as basically as they did tens of thousands of years ago. However, when we believe in this whole ancient myth about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it actually categorises them as primitive and in a way savage And this suggests that um, as nations, they never really ever developed beyond early human processes. And specifically, they never developed to the extent that the white European male did, which is problematic. Yeah, it's almost manipulative, um, the kind of reverence that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander histories are viewed with, that they are so ancient and spiritual and native, but then that cuts out all of the progress that they would have made technologically and economically in the tens of thousands of years their society was developing on this continent. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a big issue. And failing to look more deeply into the economies and social structure before colonisation only strengthened this belief that First Nations communities are primitive, uncivilised, lesser, all of the horrible discriminate, discriminative stereotypes we hear. Um, so shattering these stereotypes is crucial to improving the lives of Indigenous Australians because – I mean, frankly, our textbooks need to do better, our curriculum needs to do better, and our schools need to do better. As teachers, we're both proud to be a part of that movement, and we hope by the end of this episode you'll be a proud part of it too. Yeah, and a lot of this debate has sprung up recently with the publication of a quite a well-known Australian novel by um, an Aboriginal man named Bruce Pascoe. He wrote a novel called Dark Emu, and he really brings this debate to life, um, whether we can consider Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities as hunter-gatherers before colonisation, and he attempts to shatter that myth. Although there was a big scandal surrounding the book and whether Bruce Pascoe was actually of Aboriginal descent, which shows that some people still want to deny the history or refute it in a way. Um, it, it was quite big news. Do, do you recall that debate happening? 
Yeah, when I was doing research for this episode, I came across a bunch of articles from really prolific, you know, ex-politicians, um, media personalities, absolutely disparaging Bruce Pascoe, saying he was a fraud, that he was a liar. Um, and of course, we should always be looking at his, these kinds of books that come out critically, but to flatly deny that every single thing that he wrote about is untrue when there is so much evidence, evidence you can still see today if you go to some of these places was, yeah, definitely a sign of something else. Yeah, and we're going to talk about using evidence a little bit later on, so let's get into it. So let's do details. What were some of the farming and agricultural practices of First Nations communities before colonisation? So, of course, it's really important to break down the key words here and what agriculture actually is versus our European idea of what it is. So agriculture is all about cultivation. It's not simply hunting and gathering what the earth naturally provides, but manipulating the environment to create more food. Yeah, nobody is trying to argue that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities were secretly breeding a million kangaroos to feed on their milk, and we never knew about it. That's definitely not the discussion here. But we're saying that these communities made significant manipulations to the environment to create more food, which is what agriculture is, even if it doesn't look the same. And they were pretty darn successful at it. Yeah, there were over 500 nations across almost 8 million square kilometres. So as always, when discussing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, there's a lot of variation between various groups and clans and communities. Um, However, we're going to start with some of the more common basics across these different groups. And this might not be surprising, but one of the main pillars of farming before colonisation was aquaculture, which is otherwise known as fishing, because just like Australians today, around 70% of Aussies live near the coast. Um, Most Indigenous communities lived near the coast also, where land was fertile and fish was plentiful. So it's pretty unsurprising that fishing was one of the most developed parts of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander agriculture. And this often took the form of fish farms. Um, Some that I've seen photos of are walls of stone that were built along the coastline within rivers and creeks that worked using the flow of the tides. So when the tide receded and moved away from the shore, it would capture fish, turtles, stingray, crabs, all that jazz. Um, And yeah, there are a number of stone fish traps that you can still find across Australia in these huge farms. Yeah. And That's one of the major pillars, so that aquaculture, but landscape management was another big pillar. So because of their spiritual connection to country, um, pre-colonial agriculture avoided exploiting natural resources. Can we just pause there for a second? Because I feel like we should give a bit of background into the idea of country. And I know you've got some resources about this. Yeah, so... We often hear about acknowledging country and acknowledging the land that we're on, but it goes beyond just um, a bit of a a basic recognition. It has a lot to do with um, this Indigenous idea of spiritual identity and connection to land. So I'm going to actually read an explanation of country from the elders um, from one of the lands that you were on, the Uabara people, Um, and the source says, 
Aboriginals view the land as part of themselves, so they treat the land as part of themselves with respect and care. Aboriginal people have territories which hold personal significance and live within those areas. They learnt to understand the land and recognise signs of changing seasons, how to find water, understand movements of wildlife and the significance of finding a flowering plant in a particular place or at a certain time. You treat country as you would treat your own mother. Yeah, I love that passage. Mm. Understanding country can be a difficult one to grasp coming from outside the culture, but it's pretty key to understanding the social, spiritual context of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues in Australia. So if you don't understand it, keep reading, keep trying, keep asking because... It is quite important and it's a mutual relationship. So the land gives to the people and the people give to the land, land. And so there is that element of care and respect there. But let's backtrack. So we were talking about how these pre-colonial um, communities used land management practices to practice farming without actually exploiting the natural resources. So their farming was sustainable, um, which is a very far cry from the disruptive environmental <laughs> practices of the European, especially during the Industrial Revolution of you know, the 1700s. Um, But because of their respect for country, these pre-colonial Indigenous communities altered the landscape very carefully to allow natural ecosystems to flourish. And this benefited their communities and the land at the same time. And you might have heard them doing this through um, fire management, such as backburning parts of the land to allow it to reflourish and grow. So it was, you know, purposeful burning that that wasn't harmful and it cleared undergrowth and planted allowed for the flourish of new plants and flowers yeah and the idea that country was um, a specific territory or area meant that native species were kept in their native area and other areas weren't polluted with those species as Europeans love to do mm. <laughs> and then destroyed ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Um, it, with the evidence, especially the stuff that's in Dark Emu, there are actually a lot of accounts of the British reflecting on how beautiful the landscapes were in Australia with perfect grass and mosaic-shaped fields and a kind of shock like, oh, this country is gorgeous. And it's funny because when you think about it critically, like, yeah, someone planted it like that. <laughs> yeah. Like how, they, how, how else would they look like that? naturally. (laughs) Yeah, they purposely curated the gardens like that. Yeah, that's why they looked beautiful. Mm. Um, And there's a great quote from Bill Gamage, who he wrote a whole book about this, who he's the one who influenced Pascoe to write Dark Emu. And this is the quote, I think the skill in which Aboriginal people gathered food and resources is very well known, but the key point is they actually organised the landscape so as to make those resources so predictable. The gathering is really the end point of a very sophisticated farming process. Yeah, spot on. So it's saying that Australia was not just wilderness, it was carefully managed and, and, you know, turned into this beautiful landscape that the British encountered. So in summary, the nations varied plenty, but many people did participate in fishing and farming by manipulating the landscapes. They lived in small towns with permanent houses accompanying these areas. So, you know, getting rid of that nomadic lifestyle myth. 
And just like everywhere else in the world, these were constructed in areas where the land was fertile and the animals were abundant. So these Indigenous nations built wells, dams, irrigation, seeds and food storage houses. This food security, which again is like pretty much every other culture that has ever existed in history, allowed the nations to draw more focus into arts, politics and other cultural interests. So they were actually not spending that much time each day um, trying to find food because their systems were so sophisticated and developed. All right, since we're talking about country, let's take a closer look at the practices of the land that we're currently on. I loved looking into this. Super interesting. This was great. Um, So as I said, I'm in Eurobara land, which is in North Queensland, and the fish farms that I was talking about, they had those here. So big, huge stone-walled fish traps, and these weren't just for people that were going fishing for the day. They were permanent structures. They were fishing farms. Um, And again, just want to really hone in that point that it comes back to what the Eurocentric definition of what we think of as agriculture and versus what agriculture actually is. And this definitely qualifies. Mm -hmm. Um, In this same area with the fish farm, there was also an initiation and training camp for teenage boys where they learnt to fish and they learnt to use all the tools that they needed in their community. And this was accompanied by permanent settlements, so little villages with permanent houses. The nearby nation, which is the Nagara people from the Whitsundays, would regularly sail over to trade from the islands, which I also found really interesting. There was an mm. established trade network. Yeah. And they always had fire burning at the beginning of the dry season. And this is when they usually would go on a trip for a couple of weeks. This is where you kind of hear that nomadic idea coming through, but it was just an excursion. You know, they weren't nomads as people. It was a period of their lives, just like we go on holidays and the Europeans would travel, you know, they would go for a trip and walk around and see things like (laughs) everybody else. Yeah. And it was to allow that burning to play out because it was, it was quite a process. Um, I'm looking at Wurundjeri land and, you know, it contains a larger part of, you know, inner Melbourne and some of our suburbs. The one thing I loved about researching this is that, you know, First Nations communities had maintained these agricultural practices and systems for almost, you know, 65,000 years. So what they were doing was sustainable. It wasn't just a nomadic wandering. You know, they had processes in place that allowed them to live on the land for such long periods of time. So I was looking at yam crops. So they were actually planting and and creating yam crops and semi-permanent settlements along the Birrarung, which is the Yarra River, what we know today in Melbourne. Um, And this was obviously the centre of all life because it provided life. It provided sustenance and water. And the Wurundjeri Willem people used to meet at a series of sacred sites in what we now know as the Whittlesea area of Melbourne. And this is where they conducted a lot of trade and negotiations. So like you said, there were trade deals and there was some sort of system of economics here. Another one of the sacred sites that I looked into was Pound Bend in the Manningham region. So that's sort of near Warrandyte and Templestowe. Um, And this was a series of fishing farms to catch eels, like you said, these actual farms that were established and had their own processes to catch fish and um, eels and, and a whole variety of marine life. 
And this pound bend area is actually really interesting. There is evidence of a permanent settlement here because they would hold ceremonies for visitors and they would um, allow visitors to access the local resources. So there was a sense of ownership over the land that this particular group of people owned the land and, and were settled there. And there are also trees along the area with markers on them to assist travellers and to let them know where they are. So I think that's really interesting because, you know, it was established as their little area of the community and and there was that sort of trade and, and interaction. And tourism, this is like early tourism being established as well. Um, another practice that they had was fire stick farming. So this is where they created like a patchwork of burnt land that actually enabled plants to flourish and it also prompted new grass to grow, which attracted kangaroos. So that's how they got a lot of their food as well. Um, and I just found that so fascinated. I, fascinating. I loved reading into that. Yeah, we would encourage you to do the same for your area because I was talking about this with a bunch of people at work that didn't know that have lived here all their lives and they didn't know any of it. So there's a lot of information on the internet to go through and it's super interesting, especially if the sites are places that you know really well. So let's bring it back to the main idea here. Why has the hunter-gatherer myth remained so prominent, even when the sources tell us that it's not true? So there are a bunch of reasons, and they change throughout history. So let's start from the beginning. Initially, it was to justify the idea of terra nullia. So that's the British declaration that Australia was empty land, free for the taking. And the British used the supposed fact that agriculture and industry hadn't been established to claim that the land belonged to nobody, Um, aka nothing's happening here, it's just a bunch of people wandering around, it's free for us to take. And this, of course, was not true. There were extensive land processes that happened every single day. And just because ownership of the land followed a very different system to the European ink on paper this land belongs to this person (laughs) doesn't mean that it was free. And we can be pretty certain that the British did understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, We can never be completely certain, but they would have seen this stuff that we're talking about. Um, So the initial reason there was that no acknowledgement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land practices um, beefed up the British's claims to legitimacy. Yeah, that they were going to come in and, and make a better and establish a land. There's also a cultural element here. Colonisers relied on racism to convince their countries that it was totally okay to pillage, displace and murder entire populations. You know, it was far easier to justify the treatment of First Nations peoples when they were painted to white folk as, you know, primitive savages, you know, so primitive and so savage that they hadn't even developed farming, let alone the technology that Britain was seeing during the Industrial Revolution. So framing First Nations peoples as undeveloped, you know, really dehumanised them and, you know, therefore not many people cared about what was done to them. They didn't matter because they weren't European white men who had factories and all these things. And while it may have began with terra nullius and those cultural elements, the perspective definitely morphed through time to end up where we are now. So, 
passing stories and perspectives through generations is a bit of a game of Chinese whispers. Um, when ideas gain momentum and start to become generally accepted as fact, they become very difficult to discredit. You know, they've cemented themselves. There becomes all these sources that are backing this up through time and it becomes a very legitimate idea. So because that original goal was to undermine the legitimacy of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander claims to land by declaring Australia empty, any evidence that went against this idea was not kept. So we ended up with a bunch of evidence that didn't really show any of this stuff that we're talking about. Hmm. And over time, this evidence was carefully constructed um, to become the historical sources that we look back on today to understand our past. And in that sense, that evidence became the past, even if it might not be accurate. So this is the tricky thing about history. We talk sometimes about living in the post-information age where deep fakes make it so difficult to distinguish fact from um, from fiction. But it, you know, it's impossible to get a reliable source anymore. The truth is, though, that sources have always been unreliable and our understanding of the past is constantly reshaping as we discover new information. The people writing that First Nations communities were hunter gatherers that just wandered around the continent in the textbooks of the 2000s most likely were not making a calculated move to protect colonial interests <laughs> like the British in the 1800s. These people were just using the information that they had, and this isn't excusing um, the information that's formed as a whole, but this is just the reality. They would have believed that they were telling the truth because the truth was lost in history exactly as the colonisers intended. Ooh, deep thought there. And (laughs) it is a constant battle that we've endured in Australia, and we have discussed this battle in our Invading Australia episode, if you want to check that one out. The tensions surrounding our nation's past are called the history wars. We discussed this in length. And throughout the 80s and the 90s, many scholars and academics and a bunch of public figures were battling out which history of Australia was the correct account. You know, do we celebrate the achievements of the British in establishing a civilised nation or do do we remember the violence and the horror that came with colonisation? And like we said before, believing that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities were savage, primitive communities only gives more weight to the idea that colonisation is a great thing, that these First Nation communities needed the British to develop the land and introduce agriculture, trade, social hierarchies. Prime Minister John Howard uh, was a staunch advocate for this point of view and argued that we should see Australia's past as a humanitarian one, um, that colonisation was a humanitarian aim, which, I mean, I think that's absolutely hilarious. I don't know about you. It's definitely one of those quotes that you just can't believe nowadays. Um, And touching on your point about how evidence has evolved and how it's you know, become cemented as truth over time. It's also led to a debate about whether First Nations accounts can be trusted because there's no significant written history that supports a lot of their claims. Even an event like the Stolen Generations, which is as heartbreaking and as horrible as it was, people still want to refute claims about the Stolen Generations because there's no real evidence. And I say real evidence in quotation marks because you know, there's no written statements about what happened. So case in point here is um, Australia's old mate, Andrew Bolt, 
And, you know, Andrew Bolt has been in the media for a lot of different problematic reasons, which we won't delve into. But he's a columnist uh, for the Herald Sun. And back in 2005, he argued that there was no concrete evidence to suggest that the stolen generations occurred. And he claimed that it was some sort of preposterous and obscene myth that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were forcibly removed. Instead, he believes that these children were taken from families where they experienced neglect, abuse, abandonment, all those things, once again using claims of Indigenous savagery to justify government actions. I know we're supposed to be completely non-biased, but Andrew Bolt makes my blood boil <laughs> just hearing his name. Yeah. Just, oh. Back to what you were saying about the stolen generations. What Bolt was proposing was in direct challenge to the Finding Them Home report, which was released in 1997. And this contained over 500 testimonies from those involved in the stolen generations. Um, Bolt argued that the evidence in this report shows that none of the children were actually stolen without acknowledging the fact that these documents were state-recorded accounts with government approval. So the question that should be asked here is not whether it occurred, but whether there was any opportunity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to voice their experiences in the first place. You know, he was asking for this written evidence. There is written evidence and he still thinks it's not real. Yeah, there was video testimony and oral evidence and he just didn't want to accept that as truth. He said um, that no one cross-examined these testimonies and that they needed to go through some like rigorous vetting process. Um, so there is a bit of denial of the legitimacy of their claims, which takes away from a lot of their human experience. Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent, but it comes back to, you know, one of my favourite things about history and to debate and the reason why I got involved in history for so long is that behind the historical sources that we use are their own individual histories of how that source came to be written and with what intent. So that comes back to our ideas about hunter-gatherers and that myth perpetuating First Nations communities, what evidence is there to back that up. Sometimes we have to rely on colonisers' perspectives and be aware that these are British accounts of what is occurring written for a certain reason and at times we have to look towards the oral traditions and the stories that have been passed down throughout nations. Oh I love hearing you speak. It's like the one thing I get really geeky over it's like historical (laughs) sources. (laughs) And now it's time for our recommendations. Tan what have you got for me today? So we've spoken a lot about connection to country and respecting the histories of the land that we're currently residing on. So I'm going to link everyone to a map of the different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations across Australia. So you can find out what country you're residing on um, and find out a little bit more about their practices like we did in this episode. It offered a little bit of research that we, you know, enjoyed undertaking and and it gives you that unique bit of information that you can teach other people. Great recommendation. I have one up in my classroom. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation is Young Dark Emu. So Dark Emu is the book that we've been talking about, but they have a version. It's intended for kids, but realistically Dark Emu is a pretty um, dense book. You know, it's lots of evidence. Um, It's very wordy. Young Dark Emu is a simpler read that 
it brings in the same information. So it's not just for kids. I like it. Um, so if you're interested in learning a bit more about Dark EMU and the stuff we've been talking about today, I would really recommend this book. Um, good to have in your arsenal anyway, if you do have younger family members that you could show it to. Yes, and picture books are legitimate books too. Um, I We always talk about how picture books can be studied at any year level. So that's definitely a great recommendation, one I would have recommended if you didn't. Alrighty, and that is it from us today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you think, of course. We're always interested to hear your thoughts. And as always, please follow, subscribe, comment, review, whatever other verb you can think of to fit in there. (laughs) And also follow us on Instagram for more short, sweet and simple Aussie content at Australia Explained Pod. All the info that we've spoken about today is in our show notes for you to check out. There's lots of great sources in there. You should definitely click on them. Yeah, and we will see you in two weeks' time. Bye, Bye, everyone. Bye.